So let's recap. The UPN network in 1996 had a singular objective in mind. Tap into a demographic that's been largely ignored by all other broadcast networks. That of the urban audience. Thanks to the earlier premiere of Moesha in January of 1996, the network built on that success by expanding from two nights a week, Mondays and Wednesdays, to three nights by introducing more comedies on their schedule for Tuesday nights. The fall of 1996 at UPN would see the acquisition of NBC's LL Cool J sitcom In the House, which would last another three seasons added to the two it already had. The network would also debut Sparks, with a post Fresh Prince James Avery, and Good Behavior, starring George Jefferson himself, Sherman Helmsley. Unfortunately, both of those shows didn't last too long and also paled in comparison for what would turn out to be the network's next signature hit, the pairing of former Cosby kid Malcolm Jamal Warner and comedian Eddie Griffin for the long-running Malcolm and Eddie. Oh, it's an eclectic funny bump. But in spite of the successes both of that show, In the House, and Moesha, especially among the urban demographics, it still felt like standard sitcom fare that went against the network's initial promotional promise that they would have something new. Don't you have anything new? The network needed to put something on that was out of the box, but would also fit into UPN's ever-changing mission statement at the same time. Meanwhile, on the drama side of the network, it was practically non-existent, save for the ever-present Star Trek Voyager, which, in spite of just how much the network was struggling, was still UPN's highest-rated show. So, when you put in the equation of a popular sci-fi tentpole program, plus an emerging urban comedy lineup, UPN thought they knew what the missing piece of the puzzle would be to their success. Yo, 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 what's up, my prince of God? Drop that apron on and get with the program. It's those homeboys in outer space. And now. Word on the street is, it's going to be big. Stay tuned. Network television has never looked quite like this. PN November in Telehell. William Shakespeare once wrote, What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. We mention this because one of our many creeds and codes around here is that we judge a TV show based on its content and on some occasions the performance of its performers, and not because of anything superficial, like say, how weird a set looks, or how garish special effects may be, or anything else that wouldn't affect the overall judgment of a show in the long term. That being said, I'm going to read to you now the synopsis of this show that I found on its IMDb page. The synopsis, as written by a user named Blackjack1998, says, and I quote, Straight-laced Morris Clay and fun-loving Tiberius Walker are two Han Solo wannabes who fly around the galaxy in the Space Hoopty, a used starship that looks like a winged car and comes with a smart-mouthed computer named Loquatia, who has the hots for Morris. Ty and Morris go on wild adventures while taking abuse from Ty's brother-in-law, Vashti, and get shown up by gorgeous bounty hunter, Amma, most of the time. End quote. 
Without mentioning the show's title, you'd think... Okay, it's obviously a parody of old space shows, and they're clearly using an urban twist to it. But if I were to use that same description and then immediately tell you that the show was called Homeboys in Outer Space, I can almost guarantee that if this were 1996, you'd change the channel without watching a single frame of the show. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Our story begins with TV scribe and novelist E. Van Lowe, the E standing for Eric, a writing veteran of such shows as The Cosby Show and Rock Live. Van Lowe would make his mark as a TV creator, alongside veteran producer Michael Jacobs, with the debut of 1993's Where I Live on ABC, a show notable for being a breakout role for actor Dougie Doug. You know, the guy from Cool Runnings? Unfortunately, the show didn't have too much of a chance because it was a classic case of good show, but wrong network. So, off the air it went by 1994. Two fringe benefits of the show, however. It was through his co-creating of the show with Jacobs that Van Lowe maintained a professional relationship with Touchstone Television, a division of the happiest monolith on Earth, Disney. So, when the time came for Van Lowe to come up with his next idea, Touchstone was more than eager to accept it. All they needed was a network to shop it to. Fortunately, by the mid-90s, a certain TV network popped up that was looking for shows that appealed to urban audiences. But at the same time, they were still a young enough network that they were willing to put just about anything on the air. The second fringe benefit of Van Lowe's Where I Live was an up-and-coming talent that he hired to be one of the co-stars in the show, a comedian named Mark Alexander Knox, or as he would call himself for showbiz, Flex Alexander, or simply for short, Flex. Now the elephant fell in the hole. He said, say, you gonna get me out? And said, give me 15 minutes, I'll be back. And came back with a Corvette, tied a rope around the fender, threw it down there and pulled him up. Walking down the street some more. The ant fell in the hole. He said, say, you gonna get me out? Elephant backed up, pulled out his dick, threw it down there and pulled him up. Now the moral to the story is, <laughs> long as you got a big dick, you don't need a Corvette. <laughs> While Flex would later go on to have a fruitful career, especially on the later UPN hit One on One, he started the same way many performers would, harnessing and honing his abilities on the stand-up circuit, all the while looking for that one gig that would help him break out a little. That potential breakout role would be one that Van Lowe would write not just for him, but for his potential co-star, a relative newcomer to the business named Mel Jackson, who, not unlike Flex, would also have a long, fruitful career ahead of him. But now we need to put bold italics and an underline on the words potential co-star, because Jackson would only appear in the, till recently discovered online, unaired pilot episode of... <sighs> Homeboys in Outer Space. I mean, really, say the tale to yourself several times in your head and then ask yourself if this was destined to succeed in spite of its honest-to-Satan efforts. The spring of 1996. Bill Clinton was up for re-election. The Macarena would indoctrinate the entire world with its infectious rhythm. And somewhere within the offices of UPN, executives were treated to a show that was hopefully going to act as the central point in the Venn diagram between urban sitcom and sci-fi action show. We're introduced to our heroes thusly. In the Zebulon Nebula, round about the 23rd century or so, mercenary homeboys Morris and Ty return from an important mission. 
shopping. Oh, uh, one other thing I should probably mention. Since this is an unaired pilot, something that I noticed not just here, but also in the unaired Geico Caveman pilot, is that pilot episodes tend to use copyrighted songs to pad out their background music until the time comes when their show gets picked up, and the music in question is then replaced with whoever they hire to compose it. We mention this because, in case you haven't heard, this season we're simulcasting these episodes on YouTube. Just search Telehell Podcast. YouTube, which is notorious for flagging content if it's not used for fair use, which our show obviously does. In this case, the opening bars of Peter Brown's Dance With Me from 1978 is... Get on with it! Yes! Get on with it! Okay, okay, just pointing out legal notes just in case this gets muted over there. Anyway... We start with our heroes under attack. Oh, man, we're gonna die. We're gonna die. Look, 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 Mars. They got lasers and photon torpedoes and, oh, they got those sparkly little lights that go, Pull yourself together. And I'm gonna use an intergalactic battle we've been in worse scripts than this. When? Never. Oh. And at first glance, the only thing that I see that may be any kind of offensive is just how cheap the computer animations for this show is. But that might just be a product of its time. Obviously, a show in 1996 is going to have a lesser budget than, say, Toy Story, which, conveniently enough, is also made by the happiest monolith on Earth... I'm still establishing things. Patience. Anyway, our heroes begin to mount a counterattack. I'm too young to die. I never got to see a sunrise on Alderaan 7. I never get to see those floating purple moons on Thanos 12. Well, I'll never get to make love to one of those eight-breasted women on Fishnet 5. <laughs> oh, man, you gotta do that. <laughs> We're gonna save your ass and make sure we do that. I will also say that the set looks pretty decent for a show that's slated to air on a sixth-place TV network that's barely making a blip on the ratings radar at that point, and... Get on with it! Fine. Act 1 begins with our heroes avoiding the off-screen danger and landing in a place that would look like what TGI Friday's managers thinks the 23rd century would look like, where they come across the man who sends them out on their missions, slash Ty's brother-in-law, Vashti, and he would be played by longtime voiceover veteran Kevin Michael Richardson. No, that's not what he says to them. That's a clip from American Dad. Here's what he says to them. Hello, maggots. Uh, my Tenturian cigars. Indeed. The most expensive in the galaxy. Hand rolled between the thighs of 100 Tenturian virgins. 99. Cigars so delicate, they must be placed in an acacia wood humidor, or they ignite upon contact with the air. I assume that not even you two are so stupid as to have spent my 50,000 shabzibs and put Tenturian cigars in a burlap sack. Well, you're wrong. So now the gentlemen have to come up with the money to pay back the money that Vashti gave them to buy the cigars. Pretty open and shut storyline. But we all know it can't be that easy this soon. Fortunately, here's where we meet the aforementioned bounty huntress and frequent foil to our heroes, Emma played by Paulette Braxton, a future co-star of UPN's yet-to-debut Moesha spin-off, The Parkers. And all I can say about Emma is that 
she's nothing if not subtle when it comes to how she takes on her day-to-day life. My brothers, it would be good to share a drink with my fellow comrades in arms. This will wash the taste of blood from our mouths. Damn, that's sexy. Ah. After I have satisfied my thirst, I shall buy myself a man to satisfy my other desires. If by subtle, you mean using the Death Star to light birthday candles. In other words, the show needed a reason to get men to tune in, no matter how the rest of the show would play out. Credit where credit's due, if a TV show had somebody dress up in a skin-tight catsuit, leaving nothing to the imagination, I'd tune in. Because I'm not made of goddamn stone. Anyway, after Emma rejects Vashti's latest mission offer, the two gentlemen are none too eager to accept, with some conditions. This mission is dangerous and demanding. Does it still pay 150,000 Shabzips? Minus my 50,000 Shabzips finder's fee. We'll do it. Minus the 50,000 Shabzips you owe me for the cigars. Well, that still leaves us 50,000 Shabzips. Cool, we good. Minus the final 50,000 Shabzips for the cigars. But you already said that. Bust, it feels like saying it again. <laughs> that was pointless. After a quick repair job, it's here where we get to meet the ship's resident onboard computer navigator named... Loquatia. Turn us across to Plutarch and let me know if all systems are go. Morris, you don't need to talk to me so formal. <laughs> I mean, after all the galaxies we've been to together, it's Loquatia or Miss Jones, if you're nasty. Oh my, we're in trouble, aren't we? Oh, hey, Tootie. Uh, for those who don't remember from our Geico Caveman episode, this is Tootie the Wonder Elephant, spelt with a Y at the end instead of an IE for legal purposes. He's our resident elephant in the room and our de facto content warning. He's here to chime in whenever something pops up that I'm preeminently unqualified to talk about. Such was the case in the Caveman sitcom for them overdoing it on the racial undertones. Tootie is here to keep me from saying anything insulting about Loquatia, played by actress and future member of En Vogue, Rona Bennett, who I'm sure is doing just fine for the part that she was given. But even a blind man could see that she's here to spout out ethnic stereotypes. Oh, no, he did! <laughs> he did not just call me out! <laughs> I didn't mean any offense by that, but you've been around since. Oh, say and you will be picking dilithium crystals out of your gluteus maximus, which ain't nearly as max as you think it is. I know, Tootie. I heard it too. All of it. As the two gentlemen embark on their mission, courtesy of the lady seeking out the homeboys to give them her package. A lady so attractive that Loquatia actually gets jealous of one of the homeboys for dropping a few pickup lines towards the client. At which point, the femputer does... whatever the here this is supposed to be. Morris, you don't need to resort to the use of a feminine life form when you have me. I don't know, Loquatia. A real woman can do things for a man that a computer just doesn't have the circuitry for. Uh, is that so? <laughs> I will rock your universe. Your guess is as good as mine, Tootie. 
After what I could only describe as getting enjoyment out of a massage chair in serious violation of its factory warranty, we find out that the package that needs to be delivered is actually to bring a kid to his father's for the weekend. And as is the case with children on any TV show, they need to be treated with kid gloves. Kids are fun. Kids are the future. You just gotta know how to talk to them. Watch this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's up, little homie? Yo, yo, yo. Get a life. Failing that, there's always being a smartass. And so, with Morris moping around and picking up after the kid's toys, Tiberius assures him that nothing could possibly go wrong, just seconds before something could possibly go wrong. Come on, Mo. So he leaves his toys all over the floor. On a mission this simple, that's the worst that can happen, right? Well, I certainly do hope so. What the? For your information, gentlemen, Plutarcanians can alter their molecular structure. So since Demetrius is half Plutarcanian, he's also the creature. Thank you very much. That was pointless. Act two begins with another appearance from the lady in the plastic cat suit possibly to counterpoint the pointlessness of just moments ago with her libido. Hey, Vashti, where are your two friends? Who are you talking about? I'm about to embark on a dangerous mission beyond the neutral zone, so I need a couple of decoys whose lives are worthless. Oh, Morris and Ty. <laughs> They're not available for your foolish machismo activities. They're on a very important mission for me right now. Cigars? Not that important. <laughs> You sure you picked the right guys? After they bungled their last job, I put the fear of God in them. They would have to be the two biggest idiots in the galaxy to screw this one up. So we check in on the homeboys and... If we can make it there, we'll make it anywhere. It's up to you, New York, New York. Well, that's all the air. That was pointless. And speaking of running out of air on the ship, let's get to know the ship's mechanic, who only seems to be a part of this pilot episode. The mechanic gives the two space jockeys some words of encouragement. I just got to the chapter on CO2 filters. Great. What does it say? Well, I'm just paraphrasing here. Um, the CO2 unit was built to last, but if it breaks, it's your ass. <laughs> That was pointless. So now, just as all seems lost, they may have to resort to something drastic in order to stay alive. Three people on the ship. Only enough air for two. Uh, before you go making this grand heroic gesture, uh, we don't even know this kid. Our hero, everybody. Or has he conveniently forgotten that the kid sitting next to him can morph himself into a legally distinct version of the monster from Predator? Thankfully, no child cruelty will be involved here, as Morris volunteers to float outside the ship in a spacesuit while the other two continue to breathe air. Which brings us to a sequence of events that make me wonder why UPN would greenlight this show in the first place, aside from being desperate enough to fill some programming holes. Morris leaves the ship in a spacesuit, presumably without any air hose of any kind so that the other two can breathe the rest of the air. Okay, sure. 
The mechanic then comes back to say that he's fixed the problem, like so. Hey, I did it. I fabricated a completely new CO2 unit using simple, ordinary materials you can find around the hoopty. Just put this together, hook it up, you'll get lots of air, and not any of you has to die. Where's Morris? And now Tiberius tries to go after Morris and get him back on the ship. Only problem is, in space, no one can hear you say, come back to the ship. Go back to the ship! But Carl fixed the filter! Huh? I said you can bring your sorry butt back to the ship, idiot. I don't think they can hear each other. Yeah, I know. I could turn on their transmitters. But it is so much more fun this way. It's like watching synchronized swimming. That was pointless. We wrap things up with a scene which, quite honestly, looks like it's both tacked on and out of order at the same time. Maggots. Hey, Vosti. I don't know why I let you live. Because you've already eaten? <laughs> you two are the worst mercenaries ever. And I don't care if you have to work for free for the rest of your lives. You're going to pay for my cigars. Damn, those must be some great cigars. Only one way to find out. Where'd you get that humidor? 99. <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine as to why the tag wound up there instead of at the scene where they botched the cigar mission. But apparently it was good enough so that UPN could greenlight the show anyway. But before that could happen, a few changes had to be made. While we don't know for certain if he wound up taking a much better gig, if the producers of the show didn't like his performance, or that he knew a sinking spaceship in orbit when he saw one, but it would turn out that Mel Jackson wouldn't be going forward in the series as Morris. In his place was another veteran of sitcoms, Daryl M. Bell, who you might remember as Ron on the long-running A Different World. Your mother is so black. When she wears orange lipstick, she looks like a cheeseburger. Between him and the hiring of some soon-to-be durable writers, including a handful of them who would eventually all work together on American Dad, which I'm guessing is the reason why they hired Kevin Michael Richardson years later to play Principal Lewis, but I digress. The pilot was eventually reworked and retooled with a couple of aesthetic differences, including a much bigger role for Paulette Braxton's wannabe Barbarella, a slightly different storyline, and a more substantial budget, all of which culminated in the show being the inaugural program of UPN's new Tuesday night lineup of 1996. Homeboys, prepare for takeoff. Not that kind, this kind. Are the changes enough to help keep this show hovering in orbit? Or will this result in the space hoopty burning on re-entry? We'll find out as we try to search for an escape pod. After the break. The great combination. Great combination in New York. The great combination. Great combination in New York. Great combination, great combination, great, great, yeah, yeah. 
This week on Telehealth's premium content of the damned. Does the shoulder strap of your car cut into your shoulder? Is your shoulder strap too tight and annoying? Introducing the Titty Bear, the cute little guy that eliminates all those problems. Designed to make driving more comfortable, the Titty Bear snaps onto your shoulder strap and moves up and down to remove the pressure wherever you need it. My shoulder strap used to pull so tight I could hardly breathe. Now with the Titty Bear, I really enjoy traveling again. The only way to listen to Telehealth's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. Now at new low prices. And now, back to this week's torture. August 27th, 1996. Bill Clinton's lead over Bob Dole in the polls is so comfortable that he practically lounges his way through the next election. The Macarena's success goes from pandemic to endemic. And at 8 p.m., 7 p.m. Central, tell me if this sounds familiar. Space. What a cool place. So calm. So tranquil. So full of love. We're gonna die! We're gonna die! And while Flex reprices his opener, let's see how Mel Jackson's replacement does with his. Oh, no time. Whatever's in this box is pretty damn important. Oh, man, it's just that... I'm too young to die. I never got to see a sunrise on Alder and Seven. I never got to watch those floating purple moons on Thanos 12. Well, I never got to make love to one of those eight-breasted women on Fishnet 5. <laughs> never did that? Uh, oh, man, you uh, gotta do that. <laughs> We're gonna save your ass and make sure we do that. All right. And again, the scene is largely the same, give or take a couple of aesthetic and dialogue-related changes, proving once again that less is more. Which brings us, once again, to the TGI Friday's interpretation of the future, and yet another change. Yes, Kevin Michael Richardson is still there as their boss slash Tiberius's brother-in-law, but instead of intergalactic cigars, we get... It's your precious treasure. Mm, Mushroom and squirrel. A slice of pizza with a squirrel on it. Interesting 180 to take in place of combustible cigars, but the show's already been greenlit, so eh, whatever. Something else that changed is the show's theme song. Gone are the temporary pop tracks, and in comes an original composition which, not gonna lie, is kind of a bop. Further cementing proof that bad TV shows have something good in their title sequences. Even more so, it explains a little more about the how and why of our two heroes. This is how it all began, the true story of two good friends. Since the age of five, it's been their dream to run a starship as a team. Well, everything was going cool till a minor mishap in flight school. The body ship went very far and now they're having fun as homeboys. In outer space, mercenary brothers downfall one another. There's no mission. 
shame that's too tall. Ain't no problem they can't solve. So come aboard this space too deep in the 23rd century. Homeboys in outer space. Homeboys. Act 1 of the official first episode starts with something slightly different, as our heroes put together a way to promote themselves above all other galactic bounty hunters. Okay, okay, here's our act. Soldiers of fortune with state-of-the-art spacecraft have flown numerous life-threatening missions and received many accolades. So what do you think? I think whoever put the extra T in butt knew exactly what they were doing. So now, let's fast forward to the next variation in the story, where the bounty huntress has an awkward encounter with a random passerby, for reasons that we'll get to. Jedi, you've returned. Emma! <laughs> Jedi? The Jedi? Mars, he's been your idol since junior flight school. I'm going to never wash my eyes again. Normally, I'd lose my shit over the fact that they would shamelessly rip off some Star Wars terminology for a throwaway joke. But the two things that are stopping me is that, one, according to the episode guide for this show, Jedi is spelt as two words, Jed and I. So at least they clear the legal distinction hurdle. But secondly, the fact that this show was produced by Touchstone Television, a division of Disney who later bought Lucasfilm, which spayed the cat that ate the rat that lived in the house that Satan built. Anyway, this man named Jed is our replacement for our child transport plot. Only instead of custodial visitation, something slightly more exciting. Have you boys ever heard of the Crab Nebula? Definitely, they served that down at Larry's Fish House. <laughs> the Crab Nebula is home to a rare and valuable mineral, galendium, used in the production of neutron detonators. I have a private contractor who'll pay some serious shabzibs for a few pounds of galendium. But oh, what am I saying? You chaps must be booked solid. So, now that they have a mission book that's not at all a trap yet to be sprung... We revisit the ship's mechanic, who we forgot to mention was played in the pilot by character actor John Weber. Not unlike Mel Jackson, Weber does not appear in the series, either because the producers cut him out or he simply didn't want to do the show. So, who do we get to play the ship's mechanic now? How are the repairs coming? Captain! I'm working as fast as I can. I'm honestly not sure whether it was a genius move or a move of desperation for them to do this, but they actually went ahead and hired Scotty from Star Trek, James Doohan, to pretty much play the same character. But as a reminder, even though this show was to broadcast on a network with the word Paramount in its name and was already airing a part of the Star Trek franchise, this show was being produced by Disney. So they probably couldn't legally call Scotty, Scotty. The replacement name that they give him, though, is groan-worthy at worst, but... Ah, I see what you did there. At best. Always on my back with... Pippin, feed me up. Pippin, we need more power. Well, what about me? What about my needs? <laughs> they named him Pippin. James Doohan, whose greatest role was as a man named Scotty, is given the legally distinct name of Pippin. Scotty Pippin. Scotty Pippen. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But while the addition of a Starfleet legend and a more coherent story is welcome here, some things, unfortunately, do not change. Computer, let me know if all systems are go. Morris, you don't need to talk to 
to be so formal. <laughs> I mean, after all the galaxies we've been to together, it's Loquasia. Or Miss Jones, if you're nasty. <laughs> And I can't stress enough, I'm sure that Rona Bennett did her best with what was given to her for playing Loquatia, but this character is arguably, and I put the most bold-faced, italicized underline on the word arguably here, the only part of the show that could have been done better. They seriously could have done a lot better with this character. They could have written things for her that weren't tired stereotypes. They could have done something, anything better than what we wound up with here. Which, again, want to stress here, was no fault of the actor. Somebody had to write her dialogue. Somebody had to give her stage direction. It takes two to tango. She's old. Look, LaQuisha, no offense, but you've been around since... Oh, say, and you will be picking dilithium crystals out of your gluteus maximus, which ain't nearly as max as you think it is. And yes, by the popular demand of nobody, this also means that we get version 2.0 of the Christian Grey Orgasm Chair. I will rock your universe. But enough comparisons. Let's get to a contrast with the part where the homeboy's passenger rips them off. Boys, meet the newest member of our team, Big Bertha. She's a bit bossy, so if I were you, I'd do exactly what she says. Does this affect our split on the Galendium? (laughs) There's no such thing as Galendium, but there is such a thing as jacking your shit. Act two begins with Mr. I hijacking the hoopty, and the homeboy is looking for a way to turn things around. Fortunately, they manage to board a hitchhiker's ride through the galaxy. You know, I really want to thank you again for picking us up. It's a pleasure. <laughs> well, I'm not going as far as Rimula. Well, how far are you going? How far do you want me to go? Oh, yeah, um... Something we haven't quite mentioned enough yet here is just how much the show seems to want to earn its laughs by making one sex joke after another. Now, as a reminder, I'm not a prude. I'm not against dialogue that happens to be a little flirtatious or even arousing. Just as long as it's not done with the subtlety of a sledgehammer, it diminishes the overall product a little. Oh, and... Also, this? How far do you want me to go? Meanwhile, back in the 23rd century TGI Fridays, Scotty, uh, I'm sorry, I mean Hippin, wraps up a story over just how awesome Leonard Nimoy was. So then I says to him, wiggle those pointy ears at me just one more time and I'll beam you up where the sun don't shine. You're doing more than your share of the Dark Lord's work, whatever your name is. Oh, here with it. I'm just going to call you Scotty for the rest of this show. As we now repeat the scene where Principal Lewis from American Dad checks in on his homeboys, only instead of finding the two of them in an oxygen-diminished stupor... Maggots! (laughs) He's gone! (laughs) Boris, 
was so good to me. He always fingered my keyboard like a gentleman. Uh, no, 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 not this time, Tootie. Uh, I think we need a more obvious response. Hey, phrasing! As the homeboys taxi ex-machina their way back to their own machina, they try to regain control to the hoopty. He's gone. Let's start up the ship and get at him. <laughs> you are not going anywhere. The cap fare is 22 sharp zips. You owe 22 sharp zips. I am not leaving without my 22 sharp zips. <laughs> There's other ethnicities to offend in this show. Granted, the cab driver is sporting an alien makeup job, but still. The femputer brings the boys up to speed. Question, where's Jay? Oh, he's off looking for the treasure. Oh, he was so rude to me, Morris. He had the nerve to call me a cheap clone. So I told oh, him that oh, I was oh, not... Oh, go back, Univac. <laughs> After an argument where the homeboys are torn between going home and digging for the treasure... Morris chooses to go home while Tiberius does the digging. I don't need him. Hell. I got along without him the first four years of my life. I can certainly get through the next four minutes. <laughs> Yo, Ty, wait up. Morris, look out. Oh, Gee, somebody who just seconds ago refuses to dig up treasure with his friend suddenly joins him on the planet. The same planet where a shape-shifting pirate also happens to be digging around in. And cue obvious punchline in three, two... What a stupid jerk. I bet he wears that patch over his eye to keep his brains from leaking out. (laughs) Fool you! And cue obvious real friend returning to save the day in three, two... Drop it, Jed! (laughs) Ha ha ha! Looks like the tables have turned, huh, Morphe Brown? So the homeboys make short work of the space pirate, and the space pirate tells Loquatia what some people watching wishes they could say about her. You eyepatch-wearing, shape-shifting, lone John Silver wannabe. Stop it! Stop it! Turn it off! She's making my ears bleed! But before our two homeboys ride off into the sunset, one last twist of the knife is in store. Correction, boys. That's my fortune. Amma, are you trying to say this treasure belongs to you? Indeed. Jed stole it from me three years ago, and now I'm returning the favor. Hold on, you just can't roll up in here, take our treasure, without breaking us off a little something, something. <laughs> I suppose I could give you a little something, something. And of course, let's not forget our ethnically questionable cab driver. <laughs> well, at least we got our cut of the treasure. 3,800 shabs With the meter running, exactly what you owe me. <laughs> Okay, so you've done enough for today. Uh, why don't you go lie over there by that bale of hay there? Just, just sit back there, sit back, relax. You're done. That's a good chewie. That's a good chewie. And that's a very weird show to pin down. Homeboys in Outer Space lasted one full 21-episode season on the air, and some would argue that the only reason why the show lasted even that long in the first place was because UPN was still a fledgling network at that point, and they probably didn't have another show available to replace it on its schedule. In addition to the standard venom spewing from numerous publications, one in particular which we'll get to in a moment, this show perennially makes it onto lists of worst TV shows of all time. TV Guide in particular places it at number 31 on their 2002 list, 
And at the same time, it also brings further credence as to why they should update the list by now. You're gonna think I'm crazy. But I firmly believe that if this show was given any other title than Homeboys in Outer Space, the show would have lasted a lot more than the 21 episodes that it aired for. I'm serious. I sat through a good chunk of these shows over the summer in preparation for this show today, and while a lot of it is cheesy, corny, and questionable here and there, the show is still entertaining. I wouldn't go nominating it for Emmys or Peabody Awards, but I am dead serious that this show was still pretty decent for the situation that it found itself in. Being programmed on a two-year-old TV network that was hardly making waves except for a few shows. And I truly believe that the reason why this show was never given a fair shake was simply because of the fact that the show was called Homeboys in Outer Space and people were just too quick to turn away from it. But that's just me. I've got an underworldly boss to satisfy, so I gotta do what I gotta do. As we now go hit the event horizon on the Nine Circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. Just because the show had decent talent both in front of and behind the camera doesn't mean it's without any sins on the surface. One big glaring one is the fact that perhaps they tried a little too hard to bring in the male demographics thanks to an overabundance of sex jokes, not just in the pilot, but scattered throughout the series. Even if Paulette Braxton's Bounty Huntress actually helped me pay attention to the show, lust is still lust. The homeboys are in constant danger all the time, so violence, cartoonish as it may be sometimes, is a given. But then you get to why people would criticize the show at all. Looking at the show on YouTube, there seems to be a sharp divide between people who liked the show for what it was as goofy escapism and those who hated it because it invoked tired, culturally questionable stereotypes. Thanks to the anonymity of YouTube comments, you can't really tell which of the compliments or complaints are black or white, figuratively and literally. Fortunately, for the sake of research, there was a 1997 article written by one Frederick L. McKissack Jr. for a magazine called The Progressive that sums up the show thusly, and I quote... The Hubble telescope has led scientists to believe that the size of the known universe has been grossly underestimated. There are billions of stars in our galaxy alone and millions of galaxies out there. Yet, the best Hollywood can do for blacks is two 1990s B-boys in orbit. The writing lacks the depth of Sam Delaney and the wit of Douglas Adams. Ironically, the 90s was supposed to showcase a renaissance in black entertainment. Networks and advertisers have realized that the black community is hungry for programming that reflects its image. But the shows they come up with are pathetic. The network executives are unwilling to push past common themes and characters when it comes to blacks and other ethnic minorities. End quote. So, to that degree, yes. I can see why certain parts of the audiences were not so much wrathful, but more annoyed over what they saw. For our purposes, though, we're going to count it as wrath anyway. So now, only one question remains. If there are good things to say about a not-so-good show, then why the here are we uh, here in the first place? Do the words red dwarf mean anything to you? Bet you thought I was going to forget about this, didn't you? Because clearly, a lot of the critics and viewers seem to have forgotten about this in hindsight. 
For those who don't know, Red Dwarf was a long-running British sitcom that happens to take place in space. Granted, Red Dwarf's overall plot is a sharp contrast to the Homeboys, but the thing is, Homeboys seem to have lifted more than just an element or two from the series. From people who are needlessly hostile towards the protagonists... Your father was a baboon's rump, and your mother spent most of her life up against walls with sailors. I assume that not even you two are so stupid as to have spent my 50,000 shabsims and put Tenturian cigars in a burlap sack! To the smart-alecky, aging, humanoid ship computer that wants to get in the last word... This is a recording. I'm afraid Holly is busy at the moment. If you'd like to leave a message after the bleep, he'll get back to you. Miss LaFraysia, or Miss Jones, if you're nasty. (laughs) Even to how cheap the sets and special effects look, though in Red Dwarf's case, the cheapness was entirely intentional. Homeboy's special effects looks like they were trying to squeeze out as many dimes as they could considering how expensive CGI was in the mid-90s. Of course, thanks to legal distinctions up the wazoo, while I'm not going to ring the fraud bell because both of these shows are as different as night and day, I am still going to mark it for heresy on behalf of the sci-fi genre at large. A heresy that I'm almost willing to forgive, however if they gave Scotty more scenes. Well, what about me? What about my needs? <laughs> Homeboys in Outer Space earns four out of nine circles of telehell. And to be fair to McKissack's criticism, a lot has changed in the 25-plus years since this show aired. This is how Not only are there more intelligent shows aimed towards black audiences but also aimed for Asians, Middle Eastern, Latinx, LGBTQ, and any other minority groups that continue to grow on a daily basis. To say nothing of how Eric Van Lowe went on to become a very successful writer of novels and even more TV shows, or just how the cast and crew of this show went on to do bigger and better things. In the grand scheme of things, Homeboys was really a practice show, not just for the people involved, but also for the network that aired it. You could tell there was some effort there, but unfortunately, it missed the mark by light years. But the show was really just one piece of UPN's still-developing big picture, and also a minor setback in its quest to appeal to urban audiences, which they eventually did once their Monday and Tuesday night comedy blocks found their footing. The network started to gain traction, but not enough to take a piece of the demographic that TV networks value the most. For UPN to grab even a sliver of that, somebody had to show the network some love. What the network got instead was a valentine. Television as I knew it growing up and and as I loved it growing up and as I was part of it uh, uh, as an executive is going to die. It has to remake itself into something very, very different. So it's not worth being part of anymore. There is nothing to be part of anymore. Next time on Telehell, UPN November continues with Satan Help Me. What is Shasta McNasty? Que pasa? No! Hey! It's the show everyone will be talking about this fall. Because there's something about Shasta McNasty. I'm your father. They're the monkeys of the new millennium. It's evil, but I like it. Until then. If it's not in telehell, it's not worth a damn.
Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Lipsit. The show may be over, but you know where to find us. On social media, Twitter and Facebook, at Telehell Podcast. Want to hear some premium content? Go to patreon.com slash telehellpodcast. And if you have any questions or comments about this show, feel free to contact us at our complaint line, telehellpodcast at gmail.com. But even more than that, please be sure to like, comment, rate, subscribe, lie to us all over the places where Telehell is streaming, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and many others, just by Googling Telehell. 